You are listening to the Through the Bible Studio Series with Pastor Nate Holdridge. Join us as we continue our study through the Old Testament book of Ezra. Here's Nate. Any great work of God will suffer at the hands of opposition. Not that opposition will stop the work of God. I think the early church is a wonderful example of opposition not stopping the church, but actually really blossoming the church and being an instrument that God used for the furtherance of the gospel. Not that anyone in the early church would have chosen that persecution or chosen that opposition. It's just that the Lord was able to redeem it uh, for his good in and through uh, their lives. And here as we approach Ezra chapter 4, we come across a passage of scripture where the people of God in the rebuilding project of the temple there in Jerusalem are under intense and heavy opposition. Uh, they are rejoicing at the close of chapter 3, rejoicing that the foundation has been laid and that the altar has been built. They've ha they have now a semblance of the former days of worship and devotion unto God. But here in chapter 4, the enemies of the Lord will crawl out of the woodwork and begin their dirty work of trying to undermine the move of God here on earth. And so, uh, you know, the parallels are very obvious for us today. There will be many strategies that are cataloged by the enemy about the enemy in this chapter. Uh, and uh, but all of these tactics are current in our modern time. Now, a word that I should mention before we get into this fourth chapter, I think if we, from our standpoint, just sitting down, if you didn't know any Bible history, didn't know the names of any of these kings, we would be tempted to sit down and read the entirety of chapter four as one simple account of opposition. The enemies come against them, they complain, then they write letters to one king, then they write letters to another king, and the opposition ends with the people of God uh, ceasing to build for a period of 15 years. But when you notice the titles of all these different kings and the names of all these different kings, what is probably, uh, and, and probably is too light of a word to describe it, What's really happening here is that Ezra gives an account of the opposition in that era, and then he records a few different moments that opposition came against the people of Israel in their desire to either rebuild the city or further rebuild the temple. And the examples that he'll cite are from later on in the future from this context, and then he'll come back to this story and say, so as a result of the persecution that they received, they ceased uh, to build. And if you're not following me, don't worry. In just a moment, uh, you'll see it as we dig into this. Now, in verse 1, let's just begin here. Verse 1, it says, Now when the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin heard that the returned exiles were building a temple to the Lord, the God of Israel, they approached Zerubbabel and the heads of fathers' houses and said to them, Let us build with you, 
For we worship your God as you do, and we have been sacrificing to him ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. But Zerubbabel, Jeshua, and the rest of the heads of fathers' houses in Israel said to them, You have nothing to do with us in building a house to our God, but we alone will build to the Lord, the God of Israel, as King Cyrus, the king of Persia, has commanded us. So a couple of things to mention and to notice. First of all, just as a side note, maybe helping us understand the context a little bit, it describes these adversaries in verse 1 as the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. Why wouldn't it say the adversaries of the people of Israel? Well, you might remember that years earlier, the Assyrians had come and attacked the 10 northern tribes and dispersed them. And Nebuchadnezzar was the one who came with the Babylonians and years later and attacked the tribes of Judah and Benjamin in the south and deported them. So when Cyrus sends them back along with Zerubbabel, he is sending back uh, Israel, absolutely, but namely uh, citizens of the tribes of Judah and uh, Benjamin. And so that's why you have a record here of the adversaries of Judah and Benjamin. These were the tribes that were predominantly represented in Israel at the time. And so these people come and they're described by Ezra as adversarial. But the thing that comes out of their mouth at first really doesn't sound all that adversarial. They just approach the governor, Zerubbabel, and they say, let us build with you. Okay, that sounds like a nice offer. We'd like to take some of the burden, some of the responsibility of building. And then additionally, they say, for we worship your God as you do. So they're claiming to have the same God, to worship God, uh, just as the people of Judah and Benjamin were doing. And they announce that their worship is historical. They say, we've been sacrificing to him uh, ever since, and this is the real key, ever since the days of Esarhaddon, king of Assyria, who brought us here. So that gives us a clue as to who these people are. These people had been placed here uh, generations earlier by the Assyrians. Now, as I've already mentioned, the Assyrians were very instrumental in judging northern Israel, the 10 other tribes besides Judah and Benjamin. The Assyrians were very brutal, a very brutal nation. Their tactics were extreme and quite violent and ugly. And in 2 Kings chapter 17, we have a record of what transpired after the Assyrians t attacked those 10 northern tribes. Eventually, Assyria resettled people into uh, Israel. And these people, according to 2 Kings 17 verse 24, were from Babylon, from Kutha, from Ava, from Hamath, from Sepharvaim. And specifically, it's mentioned there in 2 Kings 17 that they were people who were instead of the people of Israel. And the record there in 2 Kings 17 is interesting because apparently when they arrived there, uh, they didn't fear the Lord. And 2 Kings 17 says, 
Therefore the Lord sent lions among them, which killed some of them. And so they had this quandary at the beginning of their stay there in Israel. And the assumption of the Assyrian king was that the people that they'd, you know, deposited there into the land, that they didn't know the laws of that regional God, whoever that God is, the Assyrian king thought, we just need to get to know some of his laws, some of his rules, and things will be okay. And so they hired a priest to live in Bethel and to teach them the law of the God of the land. But they never gave up their own national gods and they continued to worship their own idols and even it appears would bring these idols into the rubbish of the abandoned temple after Nebuchadnezzar came and attacked Babylon. So here's a great synopsis, 2 Kings 17 verse 41. So these nations feared the Lord and also served their carved images. Their children did likewise and their children's children as their fathers did, so they do to this day. So these people now, all the way fast forward from those events to Ezra chapter 4, these people who approach Zerubbabel and Joshua and the heads of the father's houses and say, hey, listen, let us build with you. We worship God as you do all the way from the days that Esarhaddon, the king of Assyria, sent us here. These people are people who are worshiping a plurality of gods. Their worship of the living and true God is polluted by their idolatry. And even though they have a semblance of the fear of the Lord, they really don't have a full fear of the Lord because they're not regarding him as he really is the one and the true living, eternal creator, personal God. And so they were adversaries because they had cor a corrupted version of the worship of God. And to that, there's a beautiful and I think important point for us to learn. The enemy's tactic at the first was not to come against the work of the people of God, but to join the work of God. There's, of course, that old saying, if you can't beat them, join them. Well, I think Satan, his approach is a little different than that. I think his approach seems to be if you can't join them, then beat them. You know, if you can't corrupt, corrupt them through compromise or hypocrisy or through false doctrine, then after that, attempt to corrupt them through persecution. You might remember there in the early days of the first church, Ananias and Sapphira, when they brought their gifts and their offerings to the apostles, they sold a parcel of land. They were allowed to keep all of the money for themselves, but instead they just wanted to bring part of the proceeds to the church. But instead of bringing part of the proceeds and saying, listen, we sold some land, here's part of the proceeds, they brought part of the proceeds and said, the, this, is, this represents all of the proceeds. And so they wanted to look as if they were completely 
sacrificial and giving everything when in reality they were keeping some some for themselves which was absolutely their right to do they just didn't have a right to tell everybody that they were giving everything and of course you know the end result of their lives was tragic they serve as a dire warning to us even today concerning hypocrisy that first moment that it began to invade the church both of them were struck down dead uh, by the lord they were grieving the holy spirit now fortunately for all of us this isn't the result every single time hypocrisy enters into the church but it's as if god was saying look here's a first i want you to know of my attitude concerning this reality but but the enemy loves that tactic loves to attempt to pollute us to bring in hypocrisy uh, to bring in false doctrine you think of judas or samson or the churches in pergamos and thyatira in revelation chapter 2 the council of balaam there is constantly an attempt from the enemy to join into the work of God so that it can be corrupted. Listen, the enemy really isn't all that concerned about the good things that we might do. He wants to corrupt our beliefs, our worship, our doctrine. And these people had a corrupted version of the worship of the Lord. That's what liberal theology is today. It's the statement, let's do good things with bad beliefs. And the New Testament church is called to do good things with the right beliefs. Uh, but a liberal theology often comes in and corrupts the man of God or the woman of God. And so Satan here would rather join them than persecute them. Now, Zerubbabel and uh, Joshua and all the heads of the father's houses, they refuse adamantly. And when that happened, it says in verse four, that then the people of the land discouraged the people of Judah and made them afraid to build and bribed, verse five, counselors against them to frustrate their purpose all the days of Cyrus, king of Persia, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia. So Ezra here is recording a bit of a timeline kind of thing. He says, listen, we were, you know, historically, we came under attack from that point all the way forward, even until the reign of Darius, king of Persia, who we'll see in chapter five and six. And so he announces, he says, listen, this persecution was bad. And they tried a lot of different things over the years to persecute us and to stop us. One thing they did, verse four, is they discouraged the people of Judah. Uh, the enemy loves to corrupt the work of God, to halt the work of God through simple discouragement. Here you see them discouraging them, bribing counselors or lawyers, making them afraid, frustrating their purpose. And this discouragement entered into the hearts of the people. It's often said that discouragement is the tool that Satan uses to get into our hearts to introduce all other types of vices and sins into our lives. That discouragement is often the first step in that direction. How many times I've talked to a man or a woman who found themselves entrapped in sin that they never thought that they would commit. 
And when they trace back their steps, what they discover is that a moment of depression or discouragement came over their hearts. And in order to distract themselves from that discouragement, they began to entertain the thought of sin. Now, in the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah experienced these exact tactics as well in the process of rebuilding the city of Jerusalem. Sanballat and Tobiah were constant sources of verbal discouragement to Nehemiah, and they actually did at one point hire a counselor to not just be a lawyer against him, but to prophesy against him. Uh, in Nehemiah chapter 6, a man named Shemaiah was on the payroll of Tobiah and Sanballat designed to prophesy against Nehemiah. So that discouragement, the enemy loves to bring it into our lives, but we are called to destroy 2 Corinthians 10 verse 5 arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and to take every thought captive to obey Christ. Listen, there will be thoughts that come across our minds, thoughts that are not authored by us, thoughts that are not authored by the Lord, but are authored by the enemy of our souls. And it is so important that when those thoughts come in, we're to take them captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ. Now, verse 6, he has another illustration, this one from the reign of Ahasuerus. He says in verse 6, in the reign of Ahasuerus, in the beginning of his reign, they wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem. So here we have now another uh, example and out of chronological context. And he starts talking about this king Ahasuerus and uh, uh, accusations that were written uh, during his reign. So one question we would ask is, well, who is this King Ahasuerus? Some of your Bibles might even call him Xerxes. And it appears that this King Ahasuerus was actually the Ahasuerus spoken of in the book of Esther, meaning that he eventually became the husband of Esther, who was, of course, a Jew, and through her intercession, she was responsible for a, a great salvation for the Jewish people. So here, sometime during his reign, uh, the citizens in the land wrote an accusation against the inhabitants of Judah and Jerusalem to King Ahasuerus. Now, the reality is we really don't have any record of this particular accusation it's just been lost to history or its result but we do have a record of another accusation towards Jews in general uh, Ezra here records that this accusation was to these Jews in Jerusalem specifically but you might remember there in the book of Esther that Ahasuerus's right-hand man Haman he came to plot against the Jewish people because Mordecai would not bow to him. And here's one of the things that Haman said to Ahasuerus. He said, there is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed among the peoples in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws so that it is not to the king's profit to tolerate them. And with a statement like that, he built this elaborate plan 
to physically and financially persecute the people of Israel. And so Ahasuerus was another king who experienced these uh, pulls in the direction of persecuting uh, the people of God. And here it's simply re recorded as they wrote an accusation against these inhabitants. Of course, we recognize that we have an enemy who loves to accuse us. Uh, we learn in Revelation 12 verse 10, Satan is called the accuser of the brethren. And so to understand that he loves to accuse us, to bring uh, these uh, arguments against us, but to resist the devil that he might flee from us. Now in verse 7, we have another illustration of these persecutions recorded by Ezra in the form of this letter. And it's very long and detailed because they gathered a copy of it. Uh, a, a letter to King Artaxerxes, and it says in verse 7 that in the days of Artaxerxes, Bishlam and Mithridath and Tabiel and the rest of their associates wrote to Artaxerxes, king of Persia. The letter was written in Aramaic and translated. Rehum, the commander of Shimshai, the scribe, wrote a letter against Jerusalem to Artaxerxes, the king, as follows. Rehum, the commander, Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates, the judges, the governors, the officials, the Persian, Persians, the men of Erech, the Babylonians, the men of Susa, that is the Elamites, and the rest of the nations whom the great and noble Osnapper deported and settled in the cities of Samaria and in the rest of the province beyond the river. So this is really a class action lawsuit, a bunch of people uh, coming against the work uh, that is happening there in Jerusalem. This, verse 11, is a copy of the letter that they sent to Artaxerxes, the king, your servants, the men of the province beyond the river. And that's a repeated phrase. It was a whole region there. They called it the Trans-Euphrates, the place beyond the river. We send greeting. And now be it known to the king that the Jews who came up from you to us have gone to Jerusalem. They are rebuilding that rebellious and wicked city. They are finishing the walls and repairing the foundation. So this tells us that uh, this letter was concerning a point in history way past the time uh, of Zerubbabel's leadership and even uh, past the next move of God in rebuilding the temple because here they actually had the walls and... Uh, you know, foundations of the city, not just the temple, almost restructured. Now be it known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and the walls finished, they will not pay tribute, custom, or toil, or toll, and the royal revenue will be impaired. Now because we eat the salt of the palace and it is not fitting for us to witness the king's dishonor, Therefore we send and inform the king, in order that search may be made in the book of the records of your fathers. You will find in the book of the records and learn that this city is a rebellious city, hurtful to kings and provinces, and that sedition was stirred up in it from of old. That was why this city was laid waste. We make known to the king that if this city is rebuilt and its walls finished, then you will have no possession in the province beyond the river. So these people in you know great 
political speech. They appeal to the king's uh, financial motivation and say, listen, if they're able to finish their city, they're going to rebel against you. No longer will they pay taxes. You'll have no possession here beyond uh, the Euphrates. The king sent an answer, verse 17. He said to Rehum, the commander, and Shimshai, the scribe, and the rest of their associates who live in Samaria, and in the rest of the province beyond the river, greeting. And now, the letter that you sent to us has been plainly read before me. And I made a decree, and search has been made, and it has been found that this city from of old has arisen against kings, and that rebellion and sedition have been made in it. And mighty kings have been over Jerusalem who ruled over the whole province beyond the river, to whom tribute, custom, and toll were paid. In other words, they weren't paying, they were being paid as a result of their great power. Now, imagine if you were a Jew in that discouraged state, hearing of your great and glorious heritage and history, your heart would probably be wonderfully encouraged. Therefore, Artaxerxes said, verse 21, make a decree that these men be made to cease and that this city will not be rebuilt until a decree is made by me. And take care not to be slack in this matter. Why should damage grow to the hurt of the king? Now, I should mention that there are some who believe that the name Artaxerxes was merely just a title and that uh, this event and letter could have happened during the time of Zerubbabel's leadership, during the initial push to rebuild uh, the temple. But most people, it seems, believe that this is actually from a moment in history years later uh, and is a letter that is addressed to the King Artaxerxes that we discover in Nehemiah chapter 2. Now, follow me for just a moment. It appears then that what's happened is that a letter is written to this king Artaxerxes early in his reign. The letter accuses the Jews of being a rebellious people who, if they have their druthers, will not pay uh, any kind of tax and will, you know, want to rule that region. Artaxerxes hears this accusation, studies history, and comes to the conclusion, well, that's exactly right. These people will rebel against me. He makes a decree that the city rebuilding project, not the temple, that's not what be, what's being dealt with here by Artaxerxes, but the rebuilding of the temple should cease. And then he says, it will not be rebuilt until a decree is made by me. That is such an interesting statement from Artaxerxes because in Nehemiah chapter 2, he was the very king who did give a decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem to its former glory, to build the walls, to repair the gates. The same king who destroyed the city here with this letter also rebuilt it as he spoke to Nehemiah in Nehemiah chapter 2 verse 8. Then, when the copy of verse 23, Artaxerxes' letter, was read before Rehum and Shimshai, the scribe and their associates, they went in haste to the Jews at Jerusalem by force and power and made them cease. This means that they actually went in and caused physical damage to the city of Jerusalem. 
That's why Nehemiah chapter 1 begins with Nehemiah saying that he heard that the wall of Jerusalem was broken down and its gates destroyed by fire. It was likely King Artaxerxes who had commissioned that activity. Then verse 24, the work uh, on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped and it ceased until the second year of the reign of Darius, king of Persia. Now what you have in verse 24 is Ezra going back to the original story of this chapter. Remember all the way back at the beginning of the chapter, these uh, Samaritans basically who had been deported there by the Assyrians and were there uh, worshiping with this false form of worship of God. Uh, And Zerubbabel and uh, Jeshua say, no, we're not going to rebuild with you. He gives all these other examples then and then comes back to that story. And he says here that it was effective, that the work on the house of God that is in Jerusalem stopped. And, And for 16 or 15 years, the foundation lay un built until a wonderful moment where God sent his messengers to stir up the people of God once again. Listen, that discouragement, that attack is coming, but let us continue to move forward in the work that God has called us to, for one day we will see him in glory. God bless you and amen. Thank you for listening. For additional resources and teachings, or to contact us, please visit us at nateholdridge.com.